The Beer Ivana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver, Washington at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of many books, including The Beer Bible. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Yeah. Why did you give me a funny look there? Well, I was just thinking <laughs> You're about... like, did I write that? You no. wrote it twice, man. It was so nice. You wrote it twice. That is true. That is definitely true. No, I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, I, I think of myself kind of as a book writer, but I haven't written a book in a while and I'm not working on a book. I am working on a book proposal. No, I don't want to talk about that, but it's very slow because I'm doing other stuff and yeah. I feel like a man without an identity. So, uh, yeah, as you said that, I just, I was reflecting that I'm, I've gone astray. I yeah. need to get back on the books. I wrote a book once and it almost killed me, so. I don't think I'll be doing that again. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a professor. You're not a book writer. So. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. I write papers. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. So I'm, the I'm, weather's that, better now, and it's nice to get outside. And uh, I think, I know that um, downtown foot traffic in Portland is still terrible relative to pre-COVID. Downtown is, but the rest of the city is hopping. That's what I was going to say. But if you go anywhere else in the city to restaurants and bars now, it's like total pre-COVID. It's back. We, which is great to see. Annoying, annoying. Yeah. You got to wait, but it's great to see. It feels really good. We we have been using Portland as kind of our our tuning fork for where where we are on COVID, and uh, yeah, it feels to me like we're 100 percent back. Um, yeah. Back back to where we were before, and the downtown thing aside. Um, yeah, that's all. That's all. You know, business office space. Yeah, that's it, a, it's, it's a unique just, situation. There's just no one in the office of downtown. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's twice as busy on the weekends as it is during the week, which is you know topsy turvy. Right. Um, but I will say, speaking of uh, the the burnt out wasteland that is Portland. Which in some blocks isn't too far. <laughs> hasn't been too far from the truth. Uh, that downtown is doing a lot better now. Uh, it's um, yeah, it's a pleasant and place. I was just down there on a Friday night um, last weekend, in fact, and it was. Um, if you're not a Portlander too, I would like to. I want to be. I want to say the impression that you hear about Portland on the national news and other places uh, as this wasteland of uh, this hellscape dystopia is not the city that I, I, I experience in, in my, in my own life. And I, I think, um, there are many pockets of many cities right now that are having trouble. Um, we just came through a massive pandemic and it followed 10 years after a massive recession. So cities have some troubles mm -hmm. and Portland is not exempted from that, but, um, I do not believe that it is the hellscape you sometimes hear people describe. No, no, so people, if you're, if you're planning to come here, it's one of the pretty, it's, remains one of the prettiest cities on the planet, um, and uh, it is surrounded by a natural wonder unmatched. Sally and I uh, went on a hike through uh, Silver Falls recently, and it's at maximum flow, so the, the falls are just ginormous. Um, so there's a lot of places you yeah, go. Yeah, that, gorgeous, is, that so. is a good shout. I don't want get, to get out there. It is. It's, it's right now it's the time to go, too. Everything's in bloom, yeah. including the... <laughs> the the gouts of water that come come on this massive snowpack we got so come to come to Oregon come to Portland I think it's a great place yeah two hundred percent of the normal snowpack nice nice stuff all the reservoirs are full even Detroit Lake now is full so um, yeah should be uh, should be a fun summer I am encouraged I think that the it's going to be a nice summer here in Portland and I think downtown's going to be nice oh this is not part of the news uh, but I'm going to mention it. We're about to head into the news, so this is a pre-news news item, yes. which I saw go by, and it, I just want to get your reaction. Maybe you know what I'm going to say. No. 
so they, the uh, Oregon Brewers Fest, the old Oregon Brewers Fest, yes. closed down. Yeah. I think it's dead forever. Except yes. for it did this weird thing, where they're they're kind of reprising it in it in the Fun Center uh, for Rose Fest. Did you hear about this? No. Yeah, it seems so depressing to me. So this is the news <laughs> item: is you can you can go to the. It's not called the Fun Center anymore. It's called something else. But it's the it's the Carney thing. Right. You know the yeah yeah. You go and you ride the, the Ferris wheel. Yeah, yeah the fair. Uh, there's they they've carved out a little corner, a little pocket, like one tent where you can um, get beer, and it seems like such it it feels to me like way way worse than canceling it. It yeah. feels like a depressing echo of what was once a proud tradition. Yeah. yeah. All right. So here's so this actually segues perfectly into my brilliant idea. Which right. If I'm a civic leader in Portland, what I would like to see is a weekend beer garden at the Waterfront Park, where you just have a bunch of beer carts come and all these local breweries can bring their beer and it's sort of a tourist thing because you can go and sample beer. Waterfront Park is gorgeous. They have big, broad lawns that you can create a fenced-off space. And uh, probably not during the week, obviously, but, you know, Friday evening through Saturday, Sunday evening. I like it. Let's have an Oregon beer garden, man. I, I like it a lot, but I wonder, is is Waterfront Park the right place or maybe get it into the city to get people, like, into the downtown, like like uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square? Yeah, I thought about Pioneer Square that it would kind of take over, and I'm not sure they, there's other programming. They're doing a pretty good job programming the square as well, I think. But, yeah, there maybe, might be other park blocks. There might be other parts. The park blocks might, it could be another. You could have it rotating one week on the Waterfront Square, one week on the park blocks. By the way, uh, Wait, let's do I, it. I, I think, recently was downtown for in the evening to watch a movie at the Fox Tower, which mm-hmm. I hadn't been to in more than three years. And uh, we left and it was dark, which is now darkness comes quite late in the night. Yep. Uh, and, you know, there's they have really decorated the downtown. There's all these lights. That is there's on all, purpose, yeah. a whole bunch of stuff going on, which I had never heard of. And I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, they've taken... That was actually one of the things that I noticed because I was in the, in the South Park blocks. I was... Uh, I went with my son to go see a, a comedy show at the Schnitz. And, uh, and that's one of the things they've done. They've taken all the holiday lights and then now... They put them back in the trees and turn them all back on just as a way to kind of make it more inviting and a little more safe and, you know, sort of create a new atmosphere. And it's amazing. It's great. I think it, it's fantastic. It is awesome. There's some street art. There was, we, I, I, I was drawn to it. And as I was gawking, I saw this large metal robot sculpture that was also <laughs> lit up and that was awesome. So, you know, I mean, this is again. That out your point. robot lords, Jeff. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and you were at the Fox it's Tower. A, I, was, I was a little bit disturbed when it said sponsored by ChatGPT. But other than that, you know, it's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Director Park right there in front of the Fox Theaters is, and would be another perfect beer garden spot. So uh, maybe a rotating downtown beer garden through the summer. Uh, just invite, invite local breweries to bring a cart, basically. Right. They can they can sell the beer. You can have it fenced off, pay for a little security, make sure everyone who's drinking stays in the fence and no one gets in that doesn't. And then, you know, sell some pretzels, whatever, a little food. I like it. I'd like it too. So yeah. I'll get on the horn to uh, the mayor and get that going. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think, <laughs> you know, Ted could use a little bit of the, the he, love that, that beer brings. Well, so yeah, he needs, to, yeah he needs to figure out some, uh, <laughs> some good ideas. I got good ideas for him. Very good. All right. So uh, in our last show, we delved into the strange, wonderful tale of Belgian wit beer. But that story is really just the first chapter in a wave of Belgian-inspired beers and breweries that got going thanks to wit beer's success. For more than a decade and a half, Belgian beer seemed to be growing in popularity, and then it cratered. Now it's very difficult to find a Belgian-style uh, beer on a tap list, even wit beer, 
we thought we'd try to figure out what happened. All that soon, but first, the news. Google AI beer and you'll find no fewer than a dozen news stories reporting breweries releasing beer made from AI generated recipes. This, this is, is true? This is true. I actually counted. Oh I, my gosh. I, I did Google. I Google. I did the Google News and I counted. Uh-huh. Um, and I stopped after three or four pages. And I could, could have kept going. <laughs> I, I counted up to a dozen and then I stopped. One example from WBZ Radio in Boston. Quote, Night Shift used controversial artificial intelligence chatbot, ChatGPT, callback to the robot, uh, <laughs> to create a recipe for a new beer. At first, co-founder Robert Burns and the Night Shift team were not thrilled with how old-fashioned ChatGPT's initial recipe was. He said, we asked, hey, can you make it more modern? Can you make it more fruity? Can you make it more tropical? And after some prompts, we got a recipe out of it and decided to show it to our uh, head brewer Joe Mashburn and see if he could we could make it. The chatbot also came up with the beer's name, AIPA. <laughs> you get it? Oh God! <laughs> All right, Patrick. I included this mainly as an excuse to throw you a question. I've been wondering about that was awkwardly written and did not sound natural. All did it, <laughs> uh, or awkwardly read. Um, this seems like a terrible use of AI. And I condemn all the breweries who are using it. And do you, do you, as an economist, do you think that AI uh, is is a, a life threatening uh, technology that is going to erase all jobs, yes. or is it a gimmick? <laughs> okay, do, do. no, no, I don't erase all. I said that before they erase all jobs. Uh, I think that um, the robots are taking over, and we have about five years left. So enjoy them. <laughs> Drink all the beer you can now, because soon. Come on, I've seen Terminator. I know what happens. <laughs> it's all Skynet. I know what time. happens when, when, when machines become sentient. <laughs> the yeah. apocalypse is coming. Jeff, what are you talking about? Uh, AI is going to have an impact, I think. There are going to... It's, But it's. I don't think it's like... Uh, um, un, I mean, when word processors came around, when spreadsheets came around when the web came around you could start like you know shopping for your own airline tickets and things like that i mean these are technologies that have been hugely disruptive right. to lots of industries and i think that ai will find its place among uh in, in among those technologies and will um uh will be disruptive but you know um economies shift it's not that um uh things are a zero-sum game so if 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 you wipe out the travel agents that those people will no longer have a life, you know, there's skills that you take somewhere else. So, so I'm not, I'm not that kind of apocalyptic about it, but, um, I do think, uh, that we, um, uh, I mean, I worry more about as a society, just sort of the f- further ero- erosion of truth and objectivity and sure. those kinds of things. Sure. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with all that. I, I actually maybe have a slightly dim review. It does seem like, when you start thinking of all the all the ways uh, rote white collar work could be um, mm. uh, eliminated, and you know, uh, like in writing, for example, uh, I'm not too worried about it for my profession. In that, um, I have to go tour a brewery and talk to a brewer. Yeah, ChatGPT can't do that. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into news stories that can totally be automated. Um, I mean, they they started automating. Uh, sports stories 
years ago because it was easy to plug in the you know the the format was so right. routine that you could easily do that. So you start you start looking at uh, you know people have talked about the legal profession, the medical profession. Yes, there's a there's a there's a bunch of stuff that people now like do that's that requires a human to sit there and do drudge work that that. You could imagine an, uh, an AI replacing them. Okay, but let me give you the devil's advocate uh, point of view. So let's let's take legal because I think that's a really good example. A lot Which of what one? lawyers legal, legal the legal yeah. profession. A lot of what lawyers have to do is write, write, write complaints. Write um, judges have to write opinions. You write all these legal documents. They're very precise. They have to be formatted in a certain way. Do and. That's part of the cost of a lawyer, right? Sure. Which is out of reach for a lot of us, and and uh, and in a way in which the the criminal justice or the justice system, not just criminal justice, but um, the legal system, sort of favors wealthier people. And so this is a way in which you could potentially bring down the cost of lawyering, especially at this sort of the low level stuff that you might, you and I might get involved in, like you know, I don't know. Some minor. When I sue you for slander, always talking exactly about when 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 we have to when we have to dissolve this uh, this podcast and we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to fight each other over the assets. That's like right. now we can both lawyer up. <laughs> we have this old knife. <laughs> it's worth at least five dollars. <laughs> uh, uh, but I so so I don't know if that's true. I'm just saying there are ways in which you can you say well look this is just an efficiency a technology that creates more uh, makes things more efficient can can uh, break down barriers, for example, to, to legal representation, things like that. So, so I don't know, um, yeah. but I'm just saying it's not, those kinds of disruptions on, uh, have two sides, not necessarily they're equal, but right. it's just something to think about. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been wondering if it, um, you, you know, you, you go, although the, I, I'm reminded of the Luddites, the original Luddites, which is actually an interesting piece of history where, there were a group of, of, of people uh, who were being displaced in the textile industry as, as like automated looms came on or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure what the technology was. I think that's right. And they wanted, you know, it was a very laborious uh, practice and they all wanted to protect all their jobs. Mm -hmm. And they were headed by a guy named Ludd. So they were, they were fighting against the technology. And everybody, you know, I mean, you look back and you, you, you don't want all of our clothes being made by hand. You know, right. extremely expensively. And so costing $1,000. Yeah, exactly. So you look at that and you think, okay, technology does have to move forward. So there's always these displacements. And I guess the big question, and, and I, I'm not going to ask you anymore. I'm not going to press you on this. And I'm not actually advocating for one side or another is. But, but I'll just put out there that many people have wondered if this actually <laughs> is is different in scale than, than some of the other ones. Yeah. Which I guess we're going to find out. Yeah. Well, who knows? But the real question for this podcast is, how is the beer? <laughs> like, you looked them all up. Does anyone say anything about the quality of the beer? I don't know. They they just, they just In this article that I, I cribbed this from, I think they were like, it's okay. Yeah. And that's the thing. ChatGPT takes averages, right? So it's yeah. really good for routine things. And like in the legal profession, producing contracts, which are completely basic, you mm -hmm. know, uh, they're just, they're just routine over, over and over again. I did this on my blog where I, I asked it to write a routine, uh, beer press release for a new, new, uh, beer. It did exactly the same kind of press release I get sure. every day. Because it's got a, it's got a hundred thousand of them. It can scan, totally. scan and, and just, yeah. So basically. if you're trying to make an average beer mm -hmm. or maybe a slightly below average beer, yeah, yeah, it can, it can write you a decent recipe for that. But why would anybody want to do that? Yeah. And for, you know, what, 80% of the beers made, the recipes aren't. No, I that's mean, the easy part. Yeah. That's the easy part. <laughs> the part is the actual brewing and doing it consistently over time. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, 
uh, the other thing that immediately... This is why, not to criticize Night Shift, you got good press out of it, and it's a fun experiment, and I would have done it too. But let's be serious. This is not a, a real thing. Don't worry about the AIs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brewing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very good point. <laughs> but the other thing I want to say is uh, you must have seen this, um, at least supposedly, AI-generated beer commercial. Yes. That if it is true, it's fabulous. And even if it's not true, it's still fabulous work of art. I, I loved it. My friend Joe was horrified by it because it is it is uh, very... Just totally there's, bizarre. There's like mouths in the, where they're not supposed to be in the and bottle. And then flames like, yeah, there's and flames. explosions and stuff. Yeah, the, bo- the bottle does weird things. And yeah. yeah, I loved it. I thought, ooh, David Lynch would... Uh, yeah, you so know, if you yeah. haven't seen this, Google I don't know what AI beer commercial. I think yeah. that's all you need. Yeah, and uh, this bizarre thing will come up. I don't know from what beer commercials all these flames come from, but they're really <laughs> what make it for me. It becomes really apocalyptic. But I'm trying to think what beer. Like, there's a lot of people like in barbecues drinking beer and stuff, and that's where a lot of it is. And then there's just randomly a whole bunch of like horrible burning up stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's I mean, where that's where I think. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> This is, You've juiced this somehow. Th- this is why everybody gets a little bit scared. It's because it's the it's the ghost in the machine, and nobody has any control over yeah. it. The machine does what the machine wants yeah. to. So yeah. fire and beer. I don't know. Yeah, if there is one worry, it's that it's that you can't put AI in control of like um, you wouldn't want some kind of AI. Uh, I would imagine. I don't know anything about self driving car. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, engineering but it's obviously like an amazingly complex algorithm that's got to run right and AI is kind of a just an algorithm but it's an algorithm that sort of feeds on itself so I I would imagine like that's one of the things that you you don't want to start ceding control of things to to this algorithm that's just kind of quasi-intelligent just because it's skimming stuff from from the web that's right uh, we should move on. All right. English actress Emma Watson is launching a gin brand with her brother. <laughs> I'm about to say, join during the party. You got you beat me there. <laughs> Joining what seems like an endless parade of celebrity spirits: George Clooney, Ryan Reynolds, Metallica, Michael Jordan, to name a few. To their credit, it's a family brand spinoff. The two will be making the gin from their father's Chablis. Still, the obvious question here is: Why do celebrities spurn beer? Right. Right. Why, like, why is, why, why isn't there Damian Lillard's, like, local IPA? I mean, that sounds like such a win. Well, if you approach Damian, maybe there would be. Uh, That's kind of an interesting question. I'm trying to decide whether that's a a smart or a stupid question. (laughs) Those are the best, those are the kind I specialize at. Okay, so for one thing is, I can kind of see where the power of celebrity is leveraged better in a higher margin, more exclusive market. I think I think that's probably I think you probably just nailed it on the head yeah. right there. Yeah, but but if you were like this big giant celebrity like Taylor Swift, you could stick her. Maybe this is good. Hey, Bud Light guys, now this is how you crack everything. <laughs> stick, stick Taylor Swift on a can, <laughs> and every you know, and that's the kind of like massive celebrity that might be able to like juice big sales for beer. But um, uh, but that's my thinking. By the way, we talked about this on. A, Previous pod, like you must have got the same invitation I did to the aviation gin, Portland location thing. Yeah, that Ryan Reynolds was at. Yeah, so uh, aviation is a was a micro distilled gin from twenty years ago or something that got sold to somebody and then got sold to Ryan Reynolds for like a billion dollars, some crazy thing. Ryan Reynolds sold it eventually. So it was it was it just it was 
one of the things that boggled my mind. It, uh, it's on a scale that beer never touches. Right. It was crazy because it's just it's a brand. It's not even the distillery. They just bought the brand. Yeah. And by the way, that just seemed like the worst thing ever. The last thing in the world I'd want to do is come to some event where I've got this celebrity who's doing his shtick, you know, his little shale stick, and then some schmuck. <laughs> Hi, I was invited here because I have a beer podcast. <laughs> And then half the guy go, oh, hey, great to meet you. And you know it's not. And just like, yeah, no, this guy can stay way away from that. Yeah. I really yeah. don't need to be yeah. part of that scene. Uh, however. Also, I did not go. So I, I'm clearly sharing your values on that. However, I'm kind of fan of the Ryan Reynolds uh, uh, Welsh football experiment, though. So I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his ooh, his movie ooh. He's a weird, quirky guy. I like Ryan Reynolds, yeah. yeah. He and uh, Rob McElhaney, who... Um, uh, oh, the uh, the sunny, always sunny in Philadelphia yeah. guy bought a sort of a, a sinking Welsh, a sinking but proud Welsh soccer team, huh. and have um, created. Uh, you know, I'm sure part of the business plan was we're going to shine the spotlight of celebrity on it. They created a, 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 a what's the term documentary? Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, that was popular, and now they just gained promotion to the next league. And the idea is to keep trying to move them up, and um, that's pretty fun. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. We should move on. All right. We should move on. Uh, so I answered the question. Everyone agrees. By the way, what the hell is Metallica doing? Uh, I don't know. I, I <laughs> you just know remember. they're involved in something. I, I Googled like who, Jack Daniels. <laughs> I, when I saw this Emma Watson thing, I thought, oh, for God's sakes. Um, Hermione, of course, yeah. uh, for those who are uh, uh, not aware. And I, 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 how many of these people have done it? And some, some of them do the Ryan Reynolds thing where they actually buy a brand and it's, it's their thing. Clooney did this. And other people will do like um, uh, uh, Ron Swanson. What's that guy's name? The actor who plays Ron Swanson. Yeah, I thought it my tongue. He, uh, there's a special blend of <laughs> Lagavulin that he uh, ah, partnered with them on. Yeah. So he doesn't own Lagavulin, but he lent his celebrity to one thing. So that's a kind of a different category, so yeah. I didn't include him in that. By the way, uh, we talked recently in the pod where I, I spent my spring break in, in London visiting my sister and my mother. My sister uh, works for the Richard Rogers. She's an architect. She works for the Richard Rogers firm, who's now long. He's gone. He's no longer. But... Uh, they designed this big thing for McAllen, maybe Talisker, one of the more famous uh, uh, malters in Scotland, uh, whiskey makers in Scotland. And so the, thank you. I don't know. I was gonna. I was gonna have to. Yeah, I'm gonna, gonna have to throw right. a flag on malter. Yeah, malter doesn't sound right. That's something else. Uh, but anyway, they they were hired because of this was so good. They were hired to do a project in Kentucky, a bourbon uh, project. Uh, started starting by a, by a group of bunch of old Green Berets, apparently well-funded Green Berets, wanting to get into uh, to bourbon. I don't know where I'm going with this, except she uh, had a trip, a week-long trip to Ken Kentucky, where she <laughs> she ended up plying her with lots of uh, bourbon. Oh, that sounds good. Um, uh, and anyway, so uh, that was just to say that um, these spirits are becoming kind of a thing, I guess, to get into the spirit game. Yeah, people, everybody's getting people into want, beer. People want a piece. They're getting into spirits. Yeah. Beer's dying. Spirits are are flourishing. Yeah, it so, is what it is. But that always happens. There was a period of time not that long ago when nobody you couldn't give away whiskey. Whiskey was brown. Brown liquids were terrible. Everybody hated them. Yeah, and now everybody wants a whiskey. You know, but, and there's another period in time, and I want to take you back to a period where it seemed like if you were a beer nerd, you were drinking Belgian beer. 
professional. professional. What? what a professional. What the heck happened to those times, Let, Jeff? You know, let's talk about let's, that. What, can we talk about Belgian beer for a minute? <laughs> Forget these spirits. I want to yeah. know because when I was in the 90s and uh, I, we were starting to brew beer, we had started to brew beer in Madison. I moved to Ithaca, New York. And all the beer snobs, that's what you did. You went and found all your Belgian beers and you brought them and you would taste Belgian beers. And Belgian beers were everything. They were everywhere. And then all the breweries wanted to get, like if you were like the cool brewer, it's because you were brewing Belgian beer. So Jeff, what the heck happened to Belgian beer? Well, let's talk about the, before we talk about the demise, let's talk about the, 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 the Halcyon days when, yeah. when they were as cool as whiskeys are now. And to do that, let's wet our whistle with this New Belgian. So it's got to be Belgian beer. New Belgian. Yeah, it's got to be. It's right. So it's a fat tire ale. What, look at this. What do you know? New Belgian brewery founded in 1991 was one of the first breweries to think that there was gold in them, thar Belgian hills, uh, which there are actually down in the south. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was people with Belgian roots or actually Belgians or someone who started this brewery and. Fort Collins, right? Wasn't it Fort Collins? No, nah, they were just they were just Coloradans who had Coloradans. who had been to Belgium and fallen okay. in love with Belgium. Uh, Kim Jordan and ah. I can't remember her husband. Uh, they divorced, and I don't know what happened to him. She became kind of the big the, the lesser half, yeah. The the head honcho. Um, but anyway, uh, they launched this little product called uh, Fat Tire, which they used to call an Ambrail, but it's been reformulated. Yeah. So that's interesting. So I thought that would be kind of a fun place to start because 91 was really as early as the Belgian thing was, you know, trying to brand Belgium and bring Belgium and Belgian beer or the Belgian kind of mystique back to America was really kind of started here. Yeah. So uh, we <laughs> we both, before we started the podcast, uh, so I'm curious to try this new this new reformulated version. But we were both like, was that thing supposed to be Belgian? I don't remember <laughs> being very Belgian. And I want to. And, and so I looked it up. And we. So I want to go to the website and okay. read what they say yeah, because that's... I think I think it's important to to establish that this in 1991 this was what passed for a Belgian beer. Uh, Fat Tire. This is reading from their website. Fat Tire's unique flavor profile originates from uh, 1930s Belgium. During this era, small breweries began offering easy-drinking beer crafted with signature Belgian yeast in order to satisfy the tastes of visiting British soldiers. Um, so, and then it talks about how this beer is easy-drinking. Um, so, they were apparently really trying to evoke Belgium in it, and uh, that's curious because I, the thing is, whether or not it was had any fidelity to the beer... It certainly introduced America to Belgium, so and it sold like, like crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All yeah. right, so let, let's try the new. I'm curious. Let's to try, try the new one. It is. Um, it's lighter, I think. Yeah, I don't remember the old fat tire that well because I've had. It's been so long since I've had it. Although I lived in Denver for six years from 2000 2006, and it was you, everywhere still. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't take a step and not hit a, hit a fat tire. I don't know where I was going with that. The swing a dead cat. Yeah. Uh, so it is golden, not quite amber, um, and uh, I'm it, looking looking for that Belgian yeast. Well, it says on the website that it is made with the house ale yeast, but it does not. It smells more like a lager to me. Yeah, um, you're right. It's very crisp and 
tiny hint of malt. I know. It's like a like a, a light Oktoberfest. <laughs> That's a really good description. That's a really good description. It's not a bad beer. No. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Um the characteristics we would describe as Belgium, which include Belgian, which would include uh, expressive hop flavors and mm-hmm. strength and expressivity, are absent in this beer. <laughs> Not really like that. It's like Ye- a yeast, yeast esters, and um, maybe a little spice. And yeah. Um, Okay. Okay. So this is not what we're talking about, but it was called New Belgium. It was called New Belgium. And, and that name wasn't by accident. That's right. They, they thought it would be cool. You know, back in the 90s, people were still looking for European traditions that they could, uh, you know, springboard off of mm-hmm. and, and, and create uh, new identities for American breweries. So you saw lager breweries. Um, you saw people embracing Americana. Um, and, and Belgium came in. So that kind of started things out. And by the way, I just want to I just want to sort of interject this in there because through you, I've talked to a lot of brewers, and there's nothing that, well, not universally, but for many brewers, there's nothing that quite sparks their, uh, uh, I don't know, imagination, passions as as Belgian brewing. Like brewers it, just geek out. It's true, and I think. Uh, this was always a thing where there was, with the exception of wit beer, uh, there was a lot more interest by the producer than the consumer. Right. So you saw for years and years and years, people who had been to Belgium and fallen in love with the beer and fallen in love with the culture, trying to get in, Americans interested in it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. All right. So let's, sorry, I... I no, I think that's a great place to start. This is something that brewers had an idea Americans would like. Yes. Well, and also that, like... That they themselves they are really passionate about, right? Yeah. Like, this is the stuff I want to do. I want to introduce this to to the world. Totally. And we've talked on this podcast a lot about Belgian beers. We really admire mm-hmm. the Absolutely. tradition as well. And it's yeah. very, it's unique in the world and uh, produces really sophisticated flavors. So that can be interesting and intense. Very cool place. So very cool beers. All right. So I, I'm not sure how we want to talk about this. I think it's worth mentioning some of the early breweries that were successful uh, early on because there was a period where Belgian beer was kind of flourishing. Um, yeah. So why don't we talk about the key domestic breweries and then I'd also like to ask you about sort of the key imports because Belgian imports at the time right, were also were, really hit hit their, their the, the mojo. Yeah, it was yeah the two thrusts. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's start domestically. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so, uh, New Belgium from 1991. Yep. And then uh, what else? How, how would you trace the, the lineage? Well, I, you know, I, I, I tried to figure out breweries. I went and I thought about them and I kind of you know, searched the internet to remind me if I was missing anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to see, like, which breweries decided to really brand themselves as Belgian breweries or have a big vein of Belgian style beers that was kind of their their calling card mm-hmm. uh and I, you know the truth is new belgium you and i were both trying to remember did they make very many belgian styles <laughs> you know it was never i don't remember that i mean there's fat tire which isn't really that belgium and i think they had a triple um yeah that's probably what i'm remembering but that's they, they, it wasn't had some really kind of special beers that were more belgian but yeah no they were more just sort of a mass market ales um there were a couple in uh 
Canada, which I think is maybe not surprising because Belgium is a country that part of which was involved in various French empires for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, for, uh, with with Quebec and, and Montreal, you have uh, French, that French connection. So um, you had Unibrew, which were the people who did Le Fond du Monde. I don't know if you remember uh, them. They were yeah. in the big bottles mm -hmm. with the really ornate yeah. labels. Very yeah. cool stuff. Very sophisticated Cajun court kind of things. Where, where are they from? Do you, uh, do you remember? I think it's Quebec, but okay. it might be Montreal. I should have looked that up. I got Canada. No, Canada's good now. <laughs> no, I was, that's exactly, I was just wondering where this French-speaking Canada is just... One, one brewery that was from Montreal that attracted my attention. So that so Unibrew started in 93. Mm -hmm. There's a few others that we're going to... But but while we're on Canada, I'll mention in 98, Dieu du Ciel. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Pretty yeah. good. Mm -hmm. My God or my, my good Lord, something like that. Dieu du Ciel. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ciel is sky. So it must be some expression that I'm... Yeah, God it, God in the sky. God of the sky or something. I think it means like good Lord. Or, yeah, yeah, good Lord. Mon Dieu. Uh, they came in 98 and they were, they are still, uh, making pretty Belgian style stuff mm -hmm. and very French, like their labels or have a, that French Belgian kind of quality of whimsy. Mm -hmm. Um, so that kind of makes sense, right? You know, you, you have that, that connection and, and the United yeah. States actually has a fair French thing, but, um, but that doesn't seem to be an issue in, in France. So then in, in Allagash, as we talked about in the, our last podcast in yep. 1995, uh, and then Omegong, I think maybe Omegong, the, the, yeah, the signature brewery. Yeah, because it totally just blew up. Yeah, 97. And they were making at their peak something like 50,000 barrels of beer, which is significant. Yeah, and that's, you know, probably they started in 97, so probably like early 2000s is probably what I would call peak Belgium, right? Yeah, something I mean, like I that. think they were even until the 20, until after 2010, they were still selling a lot of beer. Yeah, no, I don't mean just for Amagang, but I mean for like right. in, in the U.S. beer scene, like Belgians were just having a moment. That's right, and Amagang really rode that that yeah. wave, and and they were making really classic. They unlike uh, some of the other breweries that we're going to mention, they only made Belgian beers. Mm -hmm. They didn't make wild beer, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So they were making uh, just kind of. You know, very Belgian -y beers, and in fact, it was an importer, uh, the the Dupont importer Van Bergen de Wolf, mm -hmm. um, who helped start that. And then it, uh, uh, I can't remember, they sold it to somebody. I think they sold it to somebody before they sold it to uh, the, the Duval, who now right. uh, has Boulevard and and Firestone Walker as well. Yeah. But. It's it's a gorgeous brewery. I, I don't know if you've seen photos. I've actually visited the brewery. It looks your photos. Yeah, yeah it looks like a, it looks like a, they they designed the brewery to look like a Belgian brewery. Uh -huh. So it just looks very bucolic. It's awesome. They really went for it all. Uh, then uh, in California, there was this big kind of trend, and especially in Southern California, you had the new, Lost Abbey in two thousand six, mm -hmm. and the brewery B U B R U E R Y for those. Uh, following who may not be familiar with this brewery, found by Patrick Rue. So the Rue is in the middle there, mm. 2008. And then in, in Oregon, um, a kind of an important brewery was founded. It started out as Beecha, and but but then it fairly quickly changed its name to the Commons, as mm -hmm. people remember, and that was from 2010. Yeah. So that, that phase, I think, from like 95 to 2010, those are your 15 years of, of the, that was the golden time, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> And then things started to go south. Yeah, I mean, it was almost like the the, the bellwether for craft beer. At the, and if 
if you wanted to be taken seriously as a serious brewer, you'd come up with some kind of Belgian style. That's interesting. You're right. I think you're really right. Yeah. It was like showed your bona fides. Yeah, and and that was you know like I was saying if you're a beer geek and you wanted you were coming to a party you would bring Belgian beers if you wanted to see all all sophisticated and wise right and here's my here's my you know my Trappist beer or my uh, my spontaneously fermented beer by the way Allagash was the one right that that did the cool ship were they the first or am I getting that wrong they were I, I think I, I my guess is that there were other probably other uh, breweries that did cool shit beer before Allagash, but I think Allagash was the first brewery that really brought attention to that process. They started their project program in 2008. Mm-hmm. I got to visit the brewery shortly after that. Thank, thank you, Sally, for being a mainer. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they built a little, a little cool ship room and they mm-hmm. built the cool ship and they did this whole thing. So they did it properly and they invested a lot of money in it. And, uh, you know, it's become this, this, this feature that they have. So they, they definitely, I think, illustrated that you could do spontaneous fermentation in the United States. Yeah. And in fact, at the time, there were a lot of people, that, that was a question. There were, the mystique around Lambic beer and for spontaneous fermentation was so intense that there was a question of whether this process would even work outside of Belgium. Right. Which is bizarre to think of now, but I remember there was a lot of people talking about that. Like, you can't do spontaneous fermentation unless you're in Poutenland. Right. And, uh, <laughs> that's, that, that was not true, but, but now we know. Uh, okay, so those were the that was sort of the a good uh, roadmap to some of the major brew, Belgian identified. I'm trying to think of the right term. American Belgian Amer- styles. American Belgian style of identified breweries. Uh, what were some of the big imports at the time that really? Because uh, that's U.S. became a really important market for a lot of these beers, and I feel like that must be done now. To a large degree, I don't know. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, I do remember for a lot of years, I'm going to say almost maybe like 20 years, Mm -hmm. you would find Trappist beer at the grocery store. You go to Fred Meyer and there was Orval, there was Chimay, uh, which kind of seems, I'm kind of staggered by that now. Sally has, my wife Sally has always gotten me a an Orval for a Christmas, mm-hmm. put it in my stocking. It's kind of our thing. She's done it forever. And she said this last year, she had a hard time finding Orval. Right. And uh, that blew my mind because you used to be able to buy it for $6 at Fred Meyer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my point. It's, it seems really hard to find uh, beers now. Yeah, yeah. So the Trappists, I think, were really important. Um, I do think the wild beers were, were, were fairly available. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the lambic. There are a lot of lambics, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, Oops, me. Bone Mariage Parfait is, is one of the more uh, available ones. Mm-hmm. So you were you were definitely able to find that. But when when uh, Belmont Station first opened up, when it was actually on Belmont, yeah, they used to have tons of Cantillon, which is <laughs> it blows your mind to think about that now. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, oh, this stuff, this is ridiculous. I'm not paying fifteen dollars for a bottle of beer. What are you out of your mind? <laughs> which now looks pretty cheap. Um, and you know, there were, I, at the Christmas beers, I remember at Christmas, you'd find a lot of Belgian Christmas beers. So, uh, St. Bernardus, you can still find their beer, but you'd find, uh, Scaldus, uh, mm-hmm. which is De Buisson. Um, I'm going to pronounce everything right badly. I'm, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, their cool Christmas beer and other, other Christmas beers. So like, Belgium was having its moment and they do look cool. They, you look, you look at it on, on the, Yes. On the shelf, and you think, ooh, this is sophisticated. Yeah, you got a little cork and cage and your little 
Belgian-y style bottle and yeah, yeah, fancy and uh, label. I I used to when I would go to Christmas parties, uh, I would take a bottle of one of those. And you're right, you got so much credit because people would taste these beers and it would blow their mind. It would taste like nothing they've ever had, mm-hmm. and they would say, "This is awesome." So. That's interesting because we're going to get to the, the later stages when things sort of fall apart. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's, of, let's, one, keep, let's keep moving on. So we can talk about the evolution of styles, too. And I yes, think one let's. of the most important, uh, we talked about the Abbey style, was the triple. And I, I, only, I, I decided to only get non-Belgians because I think we're talking about why, why these failed in America. And so I was looking around to try to, I went to Belmont Station trying to find American brewed Belgian ales, and they're just not that very, there's not many left, especially the non-wild. We're going to get to the wild ones. There are more of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, like just trying to find a, a regular homegrown triple, kind of hard now. But I did find Illuminated by uh, Block 15. So uh, here in, in Oregon and in your uh, place of the town, the, the town of your place of work. Yes, Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis, Oregon. Uh, That's another, you know, brewery that started up with a brewing everything, but having a pretty uh, heavy Belgian tilt. That's right. And still committed to it. And because, still committed to it. Yeah. Because here I am pouring this out. So I'm not going to give you a ton of that because this is a triple. <laughs> Uh, which Thank I you. <laughs> think it's probably pretty strong. Um, so the, so you could find triples. You could find people making triples. I remember uh, it was not a, a super big beer here, but you saw it. Um, Victory's Golden Monkey Triple, which debuted in 1997. Hmm. Uh, it became kind of a big hit of theirs. I read recently they now have they've they've got Sour Monkey and another monkey. They have three monkeys, and it, it's two-thirds of their production. So they're actually still selling some Belgian-style beers. Wow. Which is interesting. Yeah. But it was it was based on a, on a triple. So let's try this one. And what do we got here? I'm looking, trying to find the alcohol content. 9%. Oh, yes. That's um, not, not, yeah. that's not nothing. And uh, it is a deep golden. That actually looks more, more amber than the amber, the not amber ale from New Belgium now. Yeah. Uh, so tell me what what you should what you expect to see in a triple. This is one of those cases where the the most important triple, the kind of the the triple that popularized all the other triples, doesn't look like any of the other triples. This is <laughs> super common with beers: Pilsner right. Urquell and Schneider Weisse and Uflaku. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these breweries uh, aren't made that way. So Westmala, uh, they're their triple is quite hoppy. Mm. Almost nobody else is this hoppy. Yeah. So it's, they're strong, bold, uh, golden strong ales. ales yeah. Yeah. Um, which this looks. And golden. we should expect the expressive yeast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is here in. There's a quality. I would bet my life it's that this uh, that this uses sugar. Yep. There's a quality that... Uh, Spot on. Belgian candy sugar. <laughs> there you are. Uh, out, the alcohol that comes from sugar tastes different than the alcohol that comes from malt. And yep. you can really taste it in these beers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Belgians use sugar to thin the body and make them more, more drinkable. Because mm-hmm. a 9% beer, if you use only malt, it's going to be quite thick and heavy. Yeah. And they want a thinner 
uh, more elegant presentation, yeah. and you get that here, and also the flavor of the, the alcohol is different. Uh, yeah, I agree 100% because the flavor of the alcohol, I'm sensitive to alcohol flavor, but the flavor of the alcohol from can, from candy sugar is not nearly as objectionable to me. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Dangerous for you. Dangerous for me when we're drinking triples, yes. Yeah. This actually uh, is... Normally I'd be recoiling from the alcohol, but I don't... Right. Yeah, I like this beer a lot, um, which is not surprising to me because Block 15 is one of the best brewers we have in the state. Uh, it's got, I would say, um, uh, just, it's, it's, it's sweet, but because it's got enough sugar in it, it finishes dryly. Yep. Um, it's got the, the esters are actually a little bit restrained, which is good for an intense beer. Mm -hmm. you can get, these things can cloy if you have too many esters mm -hmm. in there, mm -hmm. but you get, it's definitely Belgian. You know, they're definitely using oh, yeah. a Belgian yeast. Yes. So you yeah. get all that Belgian goodness. What do you get? What do you get there? Yeah, exactly that. They get plenty of esters from the yeast, but you're right. They're not over overpowering. As I said, it's a very boozy beer, but for me, if I had a, you know, a 9% double IPA, I would, I would be spitting it out because I just can't take it. But, um, yeah, something about, I never actually thought about that. I didn't realize that the candy, sh the, the sugar creates a different flavor of alcohol, but mm. it makes all kinds of sense. I just didn't think about it. So that's probably why I don't, it doesn't bother me in these Belgian beers. Right. But it's golden. You get that rich, um. Uh, grainy, um, but very soft. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, grain, and then, yeah, a lot of ester, especially that orthonasal. No, retronasal. No, retro. ortho. The one in the back. Retro. Retronasal. Yes. Especially in that retronasal uh, spot, I get the esters coming through very strongly. There, There is a hint of hopping, which I like. It's, uh, yes. it's a little bit floral, and you get it more with the, the aftertaste. Um, it's nowhere near as strong as West Mall, but it's there. It's nice. Yeah. Well, that's Oregon. You got to have some hops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is excellent. I really enjoy this. But, it's nice. Yeah, in small, <laughs> in small doses. And this maybe gets to the, the, the thing of uh, why did these beers go away? Yes. Because um, we, you know, we... Everybody, I think, drinks these beers. When, when, you, when you sit down and have one of these beers, people enjoy them. So, you know, what happened? And um, I have some theories, but I, I, I'm curious. Let's spitball, then. Let's go. What, what, what are the theories? Here, right, here's, here's, one, here's one theory, yeah. so I'll, I'll just break the ice. Okay. Which is, um, uh, especially a beer like this, kind of is halfway between a beer and a spirit, right? It's like a sipping small dough, you know, a small glass, a sipping, a sipping beer. And that's, you know, the... The, in the American consciousness, beer is a, a, a guzzling drink, right? It's something you gotta you crush your beer. Yeah, you, you sit around, you drink a lot. You, you know, can't you, crush a triple. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it, it's it's sort of culturally, it, it lends itself to a different kind of culture, a different beer culture than we have. Right. So that's my that's one little. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Um, that's I, that's for the big ones, by the way. That doesn't that that theory doesn't encompass all Belgians, but. No, but uh, Belgians are typically strong beers. Yeah. Um, we, we talked about wit beer last year, last week, and last time. Uh, and that's a that's a lower alcohol beer, but it's like one of the only ones. Right. Most of them are 6% or higher, right. and sometimes way higher. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think you're right. I think that's, that's one thing. It doesn't match uh, American expectations of where the strength should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
the one that I I wonder about uh, one the first thing I I had in my notes is it's it's yeast driven mm-hmm. and maybe Americans are less yeast focused. I mean, we obviously like either no flavor in our domestics or we like hops in our craft beer. Yeah. So maybe yeast is not a thing that we like. I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's I think that um you know, there are hop notes like citrus and stuff where you can just have it and have it and have it and have it and uh, sort of never gets old. I think that these kind of yeast notes are ones that are more particular. I'm trying to think of how I want to express this. Like, you know, sort of like a banana ester mm. is sort of nice and it's interesting, but I think it's something you can tire of maybe, mm-hmm. especially again, if you're thinking about sitting around drinking for uh, uh, for an evening. I don't know, uh, it, it, it may be, I mean, um, there might also be, I hesitate to even mention this, but maybe there's some beers make you think too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's so much going on there yeah. that sometimes you don't want that. You don't want a complicated beer. You want a more simple beer. I don't know. I'm, it's interesting. I mean, clearly they had their moments, so people really enjoyed it for a while, but it's something that died out and hasn't been replicated through the next generation, next generation. Right. I do wonder if that's a if that's a possibility for their, their revival because... I think that people who enjoy beer typically do enjoy these beers and we've gotten away from them. Um, the, the, the movement into lagers is like the polar opposite. I think yeah. I, I'd say lagers and Belgians no. are on the opposite side. So it's interesting. We're in a really lager heavy moment right now. So yeah. maybe. And it, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me at all if in 10 years we're just a wash in Belgian styles in the U S again. Yeah. Uh, Cause I do think that just like anything, you know, trends come and go and right now we're in a different, we're in a different moment. Um, all right, I got another one here. Yeah. Uh, this is more a consumer barrier issue, mm-hmm. but uh, the names and styles were off-putting to people. They're cause, and when breweries do these, they tend to, uh, it's like, if they're going to spell... So first of all, nobody knows what triple is, but right. then they tend to spell it the Belgian way, which is E-L instead of L-E. Right. And, uh, or, or it'll be something even more obscure, like a, you know, uh, a, 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 a strong, what do they call it? Quads, strong Belgian dark. It doesn't mean <laughs> anything to anyone. So, uh, you know, you back away from that lambics, giz, all that stuff is like, just, okay. Know. So I'm really glad you mentioned this because I read your article about styles and then I'm thinking, you know, uh, here's sort of the practical side and, and, and I understand I'm defending styles as descriptive was not what you were talking. You're talking about like proscriptive styles, but maybe we didn't come up with a good way to translate Belgian beers into simple categorization for American drinkers. Like, okay, I expect this, if it's called this, this is called that. Uh, And so you're right. It's confusing. Like, I'm not sure even me, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to get if I, if I get a Belgian style beer and they call it, you know, something uh, well, we'll get to this one, but you know, even like a triple, like I, okay, I, I kind of know what a triple is, but, but yeah, I, I think there. Or saison, which can be just damn near anything. And saison, yeah, which <laughs> I love a good saison, and I've had many bad ones, and many things I wouldn't call a saison, and so it's really hard, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the categories are too broad, and so the style doesn't really tell you anything, and sometimes they're specifically weird, like yeah. so what the hell is that? And it makes it makes total sense if you know about the history of Belgian beer, which we've covered a lot, and you've done a great job with lots of different styles, and and, and it's very. Uh, 
quirky and location specific and religion specific and and dude who decided to start doing stuff in his garage kind of thing. So it's a very uh, eclectic culture. Yeah. And so it's very hard to translate into this simple categorization. But I think that does make it very uh, um, difficult to penetrate as a consumer, as a as a, sort of a, a, a modestly interested consumer. Yeah. And I think for a while, when, if you talk about that moment where Belgian beers, both the domestics, but uh, also the the um, uh, the imports, it was sort of like for a while, not the only interesting beer, but kind of the most interesting beer around. So you kind of just grab whatever you want, and people would try it. But then to but that wasn't an experience you could really necessarily replicate because you weren't exactly sure. You just tried these fun beers, and um, and so it wasn't something that like I'm buying for my beer drinking week after week after week it's just like this little kind of special stuff so anyway well i think to pivot off what you just said another when you when you look at the time when when these beers started to wane Mm -hmm. was right when ipas were finding their 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 footing yeah and so i wonder how much just we went from one kind of intensity to another and hops just sort of won out it's like uh people gravitated that direction and and then that's when Belgians died out. Okay, good. So there's three things I want to talk about. Now we can go through them quickly. First is, prior to the Belgians, would you say it was mostly English-style ales that were being brewed in the U.S.? I mean, I think of English styles as like the first gen and then a yeah. weird muddle in the middle. And so then... we're sort of in the first to middle muddle. So I, I, my point is it's kind of uh, coming into this era of arguably looking back sort of interesting but not super interesting beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Kind of like, you know, amber ales, you know, like <laughs> the amber ale period. So I can kind of see that. But then IPAs come along and now there's this like super distinctive, incredibly flavorful, very regional, you know, expression of American brewing that just won. Right. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's right. But the other side of it, as an economist I wanted to ask you about, is the economics. Because brewing Belgian beers seems, other than maybe Cezanne, seems difficult and expensive. Difficult because yeast and lactobacillus and bacteria and stuff can be tricky to deal with and complicated and, uh, and um, uh, expensive because, um, you know, these are big Sometimes, like a triple is a big beer, and you're serving in small quantities. Well, I think uh, so. You you just introduced a topic that we haven't really touched on, which is the wild side. Mm. And uh, I am now from Washington State. We have Garden Path uh, Fermentation. These are the guys that are uh, really close to Skagit Valley malting, I think. Um, yeah, because this is a Skagitonian native. Go. Wait a minute. Native yeast saison, though. Yeast saison. There you go. So uh, I think I think this is a wild beer. I tried to get a wild beer. Uh, so then we have the wild side, which is um, you're right. These are definitely expensive beers because you, you introduced the topic of age, or you, the the variable of age, which mm-hmm. is really expensive. Yes. Um, I think the other ones are actually a lot cheaper because you can uh, you can knock out a you know, a, like a Belgian pale ale or even a triple mm-hmm. in a few weeks. And it's not all that expensive. You, you've got more malt, but you're not actually, you, you know, there's no hops, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some, and but but there's sugar in the grist, which sugar is cheap. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, um, yeah. they're actually pretty cheap beers. Oh, okay. So 
unless you get to these guys. Once you start adding uh, wild yeast, then you and you put them in uh, oak cooperage, which costs a lot of money, and mm-hmm. time costs a lot of money. Then you're starting to talk about real money. Yeah, and that's a different game. And the interesting thing is, this is kind of the most recent of the phases. So when you look, when we talk about, you know, Whitbeer was maybe the first one, and then Abbey Ales, and then Saisons had a, a period where I think nobody except brewers like Saisons and a few nuts like me and maybe you. And then we get to the Wild Ales, and the Wild Ales actually seem like they continue to be popular. You know, you have places like Garden Path Fermentation. I almost bought if they hadn't had this at uh, Belmont Station. There's another. A brewery in Washington called Fair Isle, who does mm-hmm. these kinds of beers, and yeah. um, in Oregon, uh, Degard Brewing is about to have their tenth anniversary. I think I mentioned that recently on a podcast, um, and they only do spontaneous fermented beer. Our friends at uh, Block Fifteen do wild and spontaneous fermented beer. So these yeah. these things still continue to be popular. So uh, that's an that's kind of an interesting, fast, fascinating thing that this this little tiny piece of the whole Belgian tradition. Has has sort of is hanging lived, on, lived, yeah. lived, lived, thrived, and survived. So right, here we go. Let's this, give it this a try. Thing is called it's, flowered. It's called the garden path led to flowered. Okay. Uh, and I just read it. Don't judge me. <laughs> oh, you know I'm going to judge you. <laughs> oh, that's what it says. But you have to. It's twisty. It's you got to. Yeah, you got to yeah. go. You got to tilt your head. And right. the garden path led to flower. Okay, here we go. So it's definitely wild. Mm. Uh, <laughs> wow. You get a got a nice Brett nose. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's really tasty. That's like lemon. It is. It's, mm. it's super lemon. It's nowhere near as wild as I thought it was going to be. No, on the palate, it's very it's, sour. Super sour. Do you think the sour is just from the? It's not. It's not like um, like melt through your stomach sour. It's more like no, it's lemon. Like, sour. It's lemon sour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like there's lemon juice in it, but yeah. I'm sure there's not. Mm. I like that 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 Brett note. Mm-hmm. It's very it's very lights in the background, but it's there. It's got a it adds a little ballast to everything. My wife would love this. She's a lemon nut. Anything, oh yeah, anything she puts way too much lemon on. Anything she cooks. <laughs> this is a few, one of the rare beers she might actually. Yeah, like. I think she should really like this one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I think um, maybe this is so maybe. Maybe this actually confirms our earlier hypothesis about why Belgian beers aren't successful, and this—it's just this is so far off the grid that it found its it found its people. And yeah, it's obviously these are a tiny fraction of the market, but yeah. um, but if you you know, I'm sure this brewery doesn't make more than a few hundred barrels. Uh, yeah. But um, this is really nice. But they found their people, you yeah. know, and and I I assume they've been in business for a long time and I really like this beer so I can see why they would. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you don't know but I'm just curious since we're talking about it. Uh, I know that for a long time these um, the American market was a lifeline to these old Trappist breweries that sort of found a, that found a new market and, and, and you know the monastic tradition is dying anyway but I'm wondering if, if the American market is also dying and if that's an existential threat to some of these places. It's not an existential threat. And in fact, uh, our supply from Belgium mm-hmm. was being threatened by China uh, and the Asian market. Yeah, even while uh, Belgian beers were still popular in the United States. Breweries that made really small amounts um, 
would not allocate very much. That all that Cantium that I was getting at uh, Belmont Station, yeah. it was going to China. Right. So and and some breweries uh, that I've talked to in Belgium were so thankful for the to, for to Americans for saving their breweries. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a period of time. Um, where a lot of these little breweries were in trouble because the local market was dying as well. Yeah. Uh, so they were selling it to Americans who were super loving it back in this period that we're talking about. And they continue to allocate certain amount to go to the United States. But the, the, the market is now bigger. So uh, like Cantium produces almost no beer. So even if they don't change their allocation, it's very hard to get any Cantillon in the United States. Gotcha. That's a, for those, uh, in case we haven't mentioned that they're a land producer in Brussels. Right. Uh so you you write here that uh, Belgian beers represent two point six percent of the U.S. market, right? So it's down to it's very small. That's excluding uh, Blue Moon, oh, which yeah. yeah, which raises it quite a bit uh, because Blue Moon makes a lot of beer. But if you leave them out of it, uh, it's two point six percent of the market, which is that, that's of the craft side. Yeah. So that's not very much beer. Um, so yeah, I, just to sort of double back to, to your point, I think that um, uh, the the hoppy IPA ticked a lot of boxes. It was quaffable. It was uh, this flavor profile that you could continue to drink and drink and drink, and it wouldn't sort of wear out your palate. Yeah, it's weird how that is the case, isn't it? Yeah, is that just us, or is that true? Is that a is that an injection thing or a cultural thing? Do we are, are we as Americans, just we like hops so well. I don't. I, I think. Well, I don't know. Here's one theory. I'm. This is. I'm just coming up with it now. But, um, like a lot of these sort of more exotic spices or flavors, they're they're rarer, and I think our mind then thinks of them as. This is a weird way to put it, but like you don't want as much, right? These are little things that, uh, and these common flavors, these orange and grapefruit and you know, floral and pine and stuff like that are ones that we're much more accepting of an, as an everyday flavor. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like I can only have so much. Um, it's not just Belgian, like, I don't know, smoked beer, spiced beer, those kind of things. Like, right. you know, all those flavors for me, in small doses, I'm happy with them. But often I don't order them because I'm here to drink two, three beers, hang out and talk and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I interrupted you. You were you were ticking out a list. The boxes. I think I ticked ticked most of them. It's you know a set. It they can be higher alcohol, yes, but it's more of a sessional beer. You drink it in a big cup rather than a little goblet. You know, a big glass or a little goblet. As I said, it's these it's flavor profile that I can kind of keep repeating, and it doesn't kind of get old. The um, especially now that they've dialed in the the balance between <laughs> between the flavor and the and the bitterness, um, and I think it's just uh, I don't know how much this matters to the typical drinker, but it's to me it's an expression of American brewing. It's like the most pure sort of thing that I think of is what Americans have given the world in terms of beer. Right. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, no, that's the culture is weird and witchy and you can't really explain why people drink one kind of beer in one place and another kind of beer in another place. Yeah. Uh, and as we talked about before, an IPA is an IPA. It means a thousand different things, but it only really means one thing. It's a hoppy beer. (laughs) And so I can go in any bar anywhere in the U.S. and order an IPA and I'm pretty sure what I'm going to get. Right. Within lots of, you know, there's a lot of latitude, but I know it's going to be a hop forward ale, you know, 
with a certain flavor profile, especially these days. I bet I bet it's got citron mosaic in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I bet I know exactly what it tastes like. But yeah, uh, Cit- are... citron mosaic or citra and or, or mosaic, one of those combinations. Or citra, yeah. or citra, or mosaic. One it's really far hard to find a beer that doesn't have either of those hops. In it. <laughs> Uh, and so that, you know, just in terms of the consumer being sort of understanding the beer and what they're getting, I think it also, uh, ticks that box as well. So I think there are a lot of ways in which the Belgians kind of, um, were almost the exception that proves the rule. I think you're right. I think we've come to some, uh, clarity. Here. We, yeah, we've had some, we've, yeah, this is good. We've had growth and learning that's happened today in the yeah. pod. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> we've mapped out why it's failed. And I think to your point. That doesn't mean that it will always be this way. Things, things change. So. Yeah. No. I. I. I'm. I'm. I'm pretty confident that it'll. That another wave of Belgian beers will come back. Yeah. There's a. I, I should mention. It just comes to my mind an interesting beer. There's a. A, a Westmall uh, makes a beer called Extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which finally came to the United States, and it's, it was only available at the brewery for a long time. It's a really low alcohol beer. Mm-hmm. It's Belgian-y, but it actually kind of tastes like a lager. So it's low alcohol. Uh, it's very crisp and very dry, and it has Belgian-y yeast, but it kind of tracks more like a lager. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who likes lagers would totally fall in love with it. So I wonder if beers like that might slowly coax people back to the Belgian side. Yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. If I were if I were an American brewer, I would get myself a bottle of extra, drink it, and figure out how to make something like that because I think it would be really popular in a tap room. Just saying. Yeah. Well, I know that here in Portland, there used to be one of the most popular beer festivals was the Cheers to Belgian Beers mm. Festival. And so that's one of the things that made me think about how... Belgian beers really occupied the the consciousness of of the of the craft beer scene for a while. And yeah, that's a good point. I I did not note that down. That was a, a a project of the Oregon Brewers Guild, and Oregon Brewers would compete in it or not compete, participate in it, and uh, make Belgian beers, and people go out and drink it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. And it's gone. So your Belgian beers. But you know, uh, plus ça change uh, uh, the the mm-hmm. ever the ever changing. Uh, uh, landscape of beer is what makes it so great. Indeed. And on that, <laughs> let's... Belgian beers are dead. Long live Belgian beers. Exactly. Yeah. Well <laughs> said. Well, that's a good, that's a good last word. All right. We don't have another, another week without a, a mailbag, but as we said last time, we hope that our, our return to normalcy in terms of regular uh, podcasting will spur you to, um, uh, to write in. Uh, we have a bunch of ideas about upcoming pods, and uh, we'd like to hear yours as well. If you have any suggestions or any comments, criticisms, questions, please send them along. Indeed. So, also, subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. Oh, Sorry. Oh, I almost caught you there. <laughs> that helps other listeners find the show. Uh, as we said, please uh, let us hear from you. You can send your questions, comments, uh, suggestions to Jeff at beer, beer uh, let me try that again Jeff at beervanablog.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram same handle both places at beervanapod Jeff blogs at the beervana blog and he tweets at beervana and Patrick tweets at beernomics alright well uh, I still have this lovely I'm going to read it again ready twist my head the garden pass led to flowers 
Well, it says flowered. I want to say flowers, but I don't know. Flowered. And I'm going to go with the uh, illuminated uh, Block 15 triple. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers, Patrick. (laughs) 